0: a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. Today's guest is Serena Nangia. Serena is a body activist, community leader, and content creator. She is also the marketing and communications manager for Project Heal, which is the only national eating disorder nonprofit creating equitable access to eating disorder treatment. In this episode, we discuss big topics such as internalized depression, making an impact in your community, and the power of systemic change. We also discuss some of the pitfalls of the body positivity movement and the unintended impact of social media on those around you. I hope this episode is enlightening for you and that it opens your eyes to something you've never learned before.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today, I have the amazing Serena Nangia on with me. Hi, Serena. How are you today? I'm doing so well. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited. We have lots to talk about. Yes, we absolutely do. For those of you who are listening, I have been coordinating a really exciting event with Serena behind the scenes because Serena is the brand new marketing coordinator for Project Heal. And Serena, how has that been for you, just transitioning into a new role?
2: I've done some marketing roles here and there, but to be able to work for Project Heal, which is an organization based on equity and social justice around treatment access for eating disorders, it's just incredible. Um, This is the first... Full time person they've ever had for marketing. So I'm getting to kind of build the role based on our needs. And that also brings with it some challenges and just kind of navigating everything. But I feel really comfortable in it and I get to do what I love every day, which is amazing.
1: (laughs) I can tell that you are so aligned with this role just based on what you're passionate about, what you're personal mission is and then the marketing skills i'm like oh my god it's so exciting it's just very exciting to see and meet you because i've been seeing how great it's been just to watch project heels marketing transform over the past few months
2: thank you a lot of people have been mentioning it and um, not to me but even to my coworkers, and they've been passing along the messages and i'm like i'm just Doing what I do, but I'm really <laughs> glad it's working.
1: <laughs> it's working. It's working. So, anyway, I just wanted to comment on that. And I kind of wanted to just start the interview really by asking you what inspired you to become an activist for individuals with eating disorders? How did you get involved in this field?
2: It's pretty cool. So, Project Heal. Their founders were 15 when they founded Project Heal, and I also started my work as an activist and advocate for eating disorder recovery when I was 15, which is a really cool alignment. I was raised to talk about and stand up for things that I believe in, and I was also raised by two medical professionals. My dad's a doctor and my mom was a nurse, and so when I was in high school. I was feeling uncomfortable with my body. I live in a larger body. I will talk about like that. I, I use the word fat to describe my body. And had a lot of body image issues myself and joined a club that was about peer education, about body image, eating disorders, media awareness. And that was my first discovery of kind of this world that exists. It was run by a nonprofit called Rebel, which no longer exists, but was a huge impact in my life. And, and I still connect with the people to this day who founded that. And then, you know, a year into working with them, doing advocacy within my high school, and learning about all of these issues, I found out that my younger sister had been dealing with an eating disorder at that time for almost a decade. And she's three years younger than me. I have three younger siblings. So this is just one of them. Um, I've spoken with her on my podcast and she shared her story. But really seeing her struggles in ways that, you you know, there's a lot of stereotypes around what people with eating disorders look and act like. And if you don't have a really nuanced understanding of what eating disorders are, it's really hard to notice. So even like my parents, they started noticing certain behaviors, but because I was getting trained in this through my club, which was amazing, I also started to notice smaller behaviors. And my sister and I didn't talk about it for a long time and I didn't really realize how severe it was, but she lost a certain amount of weight within like a month. And that was like the height of her eating disorder. And then my parents took her to see outpatient therapists and dietitians. And she never got to the point where she was in IOP or inpatient, but she definitely could have, if things don't get caught quickly, it can happen very easily where you get really sick. And she was already really sick. Like you're a growing teenager. I mean, you're a person and just like not having the nutrients and then also having just a really diet culture mindset and compensatory mindset around exercise and just not feeling okay in your skin is something that a lot of people, my age at the time when I was 17 and also now when I'm 24, like it feels like everybody is not feeling comfortable in their own skin. And so that was really how I got exposed to the impact of eating disorders, being in a household with somebody who had an eating disorder. And then I went to college, founded a club, a similar club on campus about the same things, found a ton more people who had dealt with eating disorders, but like were much more varied because college not only is a place where just People come who have had mental illness issues, but also a place where eating disorders very much thrive. You know, you're on your own and that sort of thing. But I started this club, started talking more about eating disorders, started going to conferences, reading, watching webinars, and discovered fat phobia and weight stigma and really found my place in the body image world. But the reason I do everything I do is mostly, you know, it started with my sister and she's the fire behind everything that I do. I see my sister and every single person we help or who I talk to, so, yeah. Wow,
1: thank you so much for sharing that part of your story. Is your sister
2: well now? She is, yeah. She's in her junior year of college, and she's in recovery. I think still struggle every once in a while, but in general, like, she's not engaging in actively in even sort of behaviors. I'm
1: really happy to hear that. And I'm also glad to know that there are sisters out there like you who may not have had an eating disorder yourself, but helping their sister, almost a mission in life. It's just a really beautiful way your path went. Although I'm sure it was really hard to see your sister go through that. It's also really beautiful to see that you care so much about her that you've made this your career
2: yeah I think about it often and I don't know what it is that hits so hard but it's just something about like not feeling comfortable and who you are in your skin and society telling all of us that we're not enough or okay as we are just seems like absolutely inexcusably wrong and I just don't want to stand by and watch it happen and as you know, like eating disorders are one of the most prevalent mental illnesses and disorders in the U S and just like psychiatric illness, one of the most deadly psychiatric illnesses. And just those facts about not only eating disorders, but I'll share a little bit more about like some fat phobia facts and weight stigma. just like, how is all of this happening and people are doing stuff, but like the funding is, fractions of pennies to what other mental illnesses and research and and nonprofits are getting. So it's really quite... So frustrating. Get, yeah, as I get quite angry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good that you have a fiery side. Do you have any insight as to why the research funding is so low with eating disorders?
2: Really good question. And I have suspicions. I think some of the basic Ideas are like stigma, eating disorders aren't understood. They're seen as a women's issue, which they are not. They are an issue that affects everybody, but often women's issues are less funded. Um, They impact marginalized people at a higher rate. So they're also like an issue that affects marginalized people. So and then I think in general, like capitalism and diet culture and wellness culture That has been kind of skewed to actually not be helpful for mental health in general. I think all of these companies and organizations that really, I think they have a foothold in our society and who gets funded and why. And so it's not in the interest of diet companies and weight loss companies to encourage big donations to the eating disorder world and it's not in the interest of them to get more research on weight stigma and all and like the impact that intentional weight loss can have on mental health and all of these things and because they have such a hold on the community and our society in the U.S. specifically and they have a lot of power it's like discouraging and it discourages others and other companies and other individuals to donate and to even do research. And the research that is being done, obviously some of it is reputable, but a lot of research that diet industry uses is very much biased or interpreted in a biased way, which makes it confusing for donors, for lawmakers to make decisions, which are actually could be helpful because they're reading potentially biased statistics And also are unwilling or just don't make the time to listen to the reputable sources like eating disorder nonprofits that are really trying to make a difference in this world. It's a constant uphill battle, as we talked about earlier. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You
1: definitely provided some pretty good insight on that last question and just thinking about the grip that diet culture has on everyone. The grip that diet culture has on the big decision makers who have a lot of money to fund research, it makes so much sense. And then layered on top of that, the nuances of eating disorders and how that they are super misunderstood and how diet culture blurs into behavior so easily. I, you know, just talking with you for five minutes about this, I'm like, wow, no wonder <laughs> research yeah. is completely dire right now with uh the eating disorder recovery spaces very fascinating so interesting thank
2: you for that question yeah that could have been a whole nother podcast I did not even plan to ask you that <laughs> question It could have <laughs> i i'll connect you to some people <laughs>
1: well yeah thank you i appreciate that but anyway so i wanted to bring it to your identity. I know you identify yourself as a fat woman who is half Indian and half white. And I'm just wondering how having these identities have influenced your relationship with your body and also your relationship with food. I know your sister had an eating disorder and I'm just curious what your journey looked like.
2: It's been an interesting ride the past year, I'd say because I've been so focused on my sister that who very much reflects many of my identities and that we're the same race and all of that. But clearly I have different identities and different experiences than she does. And so I've been trying to kind of conceptualize where a lot of my background and ideas intersect. I think I've always, you know, my dad isn't is fat and my grandma is fat and my mom is in a fat body now and used to be thinner but has medical issues and then you add like trauma and I have triplet younger siblings so I'm the oldest of four and I was a second mom to them and you add like just generally living in a world that doesn't like to For some reason, we're just so like taught to not be ourselves like, you know, in middle school, high school, like we need to be the cool kids. We need to be this click or that click. And so I think what I found is that through discovering my own identities, I've had to go in and out of going away from myself and then coming back and going away from myself, realizing that how harmful that was and coming back. And intentionally, you know, in middle school and high school, like trying to not accept who I was, like not accept I'm a very fiery person. Like I'm an Aries. I'm very sassy. I was like raised to say what I'm feeling and what I believe. And some formative moments where in high school where I thought that it made me unattractive to men to be loud and i guess confronting kind of these issues in society like i intentionally took a step back from myself and when i came back it feels like wow everything's like feeling better i was senior in high school i was started and then i went to college founded rebel and all these things and then even in the past year like i started a new job before project heal where i was asked to step away from who I am because I was a representative of an organization that didn't have the same values as me that didn't necessarily have like their values weren't necessarily wrong. It just, I'm very social justice oriented. I, like I said, feel like I need to speak out. And I was kind of, I don't know if it was just kind of a culture of like, you just kind of stay in your place and don't make noise. And even if you try to make noise, people aren't listening. So even since I left that job and then started Project Heal, I've been coming back to myself. So all of this is to say, like, I think I'm still discovering who I am and what identities mean the most to me and what identities have impacted my self-image and my life in general. I've recently, like. Being a biracial person, I'm very much white presenting, and that has been an interesting struggle because I've had a few people in the past three weeks called me a person of color, and I've never identified that way. And I had a friend recently tell me, well, maybe that's your whiteness talking. Like, maybe it's you're trying to, like, identify with your white half because it's more acceptable in society to be white. Um, that's something I've just been dealing with in the past two weeks. I think being a fat woman, I can tell you stories about weight stigma. I'll tell you some facts and makes life a little bit harder because mm-hmm. you're always like combating all the different forms of oppression, the four eyes of oppression you've ideological interpersonal institutional and then you also have internalized so Mm -hmm. internalized oppression is like one of the most least talked about but it's why like often hate themselves and are constantly trying to lose weight is because they might believe that them being a fat person is wrong that they've been taught internalized hate and internalized oppression and so i've really been working on that for the past eight years since I started this work, in addition to all the institutional, ideological, you know, interpersonal oppression and systemic issues that I'm constantly working against. But I think self-work and self-awareness and constantly learning is just what I'm doing right now. So I think it's really important to hold complexity and hold confusion like I can't give you a straight answer on this question because I don't know and like I don't think anyone truly understands every facet of their identity but especially me being like 24 and still really learning about all this I appreciate the complexity and confusion even though it's difficult
1: (laughs) it sounds like a constant journey of growth and understanding and awareness. and it's just amazing to hear how aware you are of all this and just making the comments about being biracial and the confusion you feel there and identifying your friend making that kind of sounded like a world confronting comments a little about identifying more with the white part of yourself and the part of yourself that's a woman of color, right? And then also, yeah. Unpacking your own internalized oppression, especially in the form of, I'm assuming, internalized fat phobia from diet culture, sounds like a big mountain to climb in that way. So when it comes to internalized oppression, can you speak a little bit more about that, just in case people listening have never heard that term before? Yeah,
2: well, it's, I mean, most people haven't. And it's a kind of complex idea. So when it comes to any sort of identity that has been marginalized, like, for example, like I was saying, kind of being in a larger body and fatness, because I'm experiencing so many messages from outside telling me that how I look is wrong, I should lose weight, I am unhealthy, I am not attractive or I'm over-sexualized and fetishized. All these things are coming from outside. And then I was also born in the U.S. So I was born into a culture that I immediately started receiving messages from diet culture saying, you need to be thin. You need to also, you need to be white. Like you need to maintain certain beauty standards that are the most acceptable. And I was taught that if I don't do those things, or if I maintain this fat body, that first of all, I'm less safe because I'm constantly being thrown insults or microaggressions. And also that I'm less likely to, for example, fat people get hired at lower rates, fired at higher rates, they're paid $1.25 Less an hour than their thinner counterparts with the same qualifications. Eighty percent of emergency rooms don't have scanners equipped to scan and fat folks. So it's like all of these things that exist outside make me. Why would I want to live in this body? Well, like I should hate myself. Like I should feel like I should be oppressed. I should be called these names. I shouldn't have access to clothing. Like what makes me deserve all these things? So these are like thoughts that happen when internalized oppression happens. And in similar ways, like, I can't speak to it directly, but like a lot of people of color experience internalized oppression where they've also been told they're not attractive. They're not these things. Black people are stereotyped as being violent and being thrown all of these messages at us and then you know as a person of color you might start to believe oh my child is actually violent like my child is more likely to be violent and like in reality there's nothing about someone's skin color that makes them more one thing or another and there's nothing about someone's size that makes them one thing or another like besides the fact that i'm fat and this person is black like That's the only thing that that says about someone. There are many cultural aspects that come with being of a different race. There are many, I'm trying to think of maybe like a cultural aspect that might affect, you know, being plus size, like you can't, you don't have access to clothing as often. So there are definitely things that happen as a result of external oppression, but the internalized oppression is like just internalized hatred of starting to believe essentially, you've been told these messages enough that you really believe them. And to the point where sometimes people who have been marginalized speak up very loudly about that, those beliefs that have been taught to them. And I can't speak for other people, whether that's true or not. But I know, like, my dad has been in a generally fat body all of his life. My grandma's the same. And For a long time, when I started speaking up about fat phobia and weight stigma, they didn't necessarily like say I was wrong because they were experiencing these things, but it was almost just an accepted fact. This is how we have to live our life. Like This is what life is as a fat person. And the only way to change it is to lose weight and not be fat anymore. Mm. And in reality, like the onus shouldn't be on the individual because people are fat or for a number of reasons and fatness is like one of the ones that people believe can be changed. Right. Versus like race. You can't change your race necessarily unless you do like really bad things to yourself. And so the onus shouldn't be on the individual. It should be the systems that are changed. Why Mm -hmm. are we treating certain people worse just because they are in larger bodies? Like what about someone being fat makes them less worthy of rights and access, and there are many reasons why these messages started, which I can get into a little bit. That's internalized depression. <laughs> like I said, it's, it's a complex topic.
1: I think it's interesting that most individuals in your family live in a that body, and so the cultural norm within the family unit was we are fat people who the only way to escape this oppression is to potentially lose weight or diet. But you're opening the door of actually there's a chance of freedom through activism, changing the system, looking at the bigger picture. I feel like that must be a relieving option for so many who maybe have been stuck in chronic dieting for so long.
2: Yeah every time I have these conversations with people, I always come out with something and that's like kind of seeing, it's hard for me to see myself as like an inspiration sometimes, but like, it's really, that is kind of an inspirational thing. Of course, I'm working on the backs of many other people who have been doing the work long before I have, but being able to bring that perspective into my family, it's like disrupting generational trauma. Like, to believe that you are not personally the problem, to believe that the system is the problem. is such a concept that is hard because it's easy, quote unquote, to change an individual, but to change a system takes centuries and millennia. Like, I don't know. And so I go into this activism work knowing that, yeah, it'd be easier if I lose weight, I guess. Like, whatever that means, it would be easier for the system, it'd be easier for other people. But I would really suffer because dieting and is, like, obviously takes a huge mental toll. Like, if I was to try to lose weight, I'd probably develop an eating disorder very quickly. And because that's, like, my body is at its natural place with me eating, you know, balanced meals and getting exercise and we all have like things that we can improve on with our health as far as like everything, including mental health, but my body is where it's at. And to try to change it would mean taking really extreme measures that to me would become an eating disorder type thought. So yeah, I, but what I was going to say is that like being an activist, I said this in an interview recently, like being an activist is a lifelong commitment being an activist is me choosing to take strides every day or every week, allow myself time to take breaks, like make it sustainable, but to know that I'm going to try to make changes and I'm going to make small changes along the way through my family and through the organizations I work for. And like being one of these people who speaks up when something is not fair. And inaccessible for people, but to also know that long-term change through laws and through societal change of just discourse and messaging will take years, decades, centuries. Like messaging around bodies has changed every few decades.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really helpful reminder for everyone listening is that might feel like a big heavy lift to change a system, but you can more Usually, and you obviously it's not your responsibility, but maybe through your actions, have a positive influence on your family, you know, and set the example of a different option. I know when you were talking, I thought about, you know, mental illness runs in my family. I had an eating disorder, but other mental illnesses run in the family. And growing up, I was taught to keep that on lock, right? We're not talking about anything related to mental illness and I just started talking about my mental illness through my work and just a few I think it was last summer, someone in my family, we're all sitting at a table, my family member doesn't drink, someone made a comment and my family member said, "Well, that's because I'm on medication because I have bipolar disorder." And it was like so factual, so non-stigmatized, just like Owned. And I was so proud because that would have never happened, you know, 10, 20 years ago.
2: Yeah. You don't really realize how big of an impact you make on someone. Like I say constantly, if you change one person's world, you've changed the world. So start with one person, start with your family, if that's a place that is safe for you to engage in this discourse or just like to be you and to be open about it. And then people really follow your lead. And I know, like, for me, social media has been a place where I'm been really open for years about body image and fat phobia and just existing in my body. And I get messages constantly, like, I saw this two years ago, and it's made this impact or thank you for posting about this, or I really liked your podcast episode. And so while I do this for my sister and for people like her, it's just, you might not know how big of an impact you're making until the random summer dinner where you're sitting down with your family and someone makes a comment or like the random DM you get where you're like, I had an eating disorder and I decided to get help because of you. You can make such an impact just being your authentic self, which is why I'm trying so hard to just step into myself because the more you are you, the more you can help other people. I love that.
1: I've chilled hearing you bring that up because it's just really nice to think that you can be authentically yourself, and the more you work towards that, the more positive impact you can have with those around you without even trying. You're just focusing on being your best person and it can be magical when you do that. I love that. I know we only have a few minutes to go. But I did want to talk a little bit about social media in recovery spaces because this is part of your career and there are just a few things I've heard you talk about that I'd love us to touch on on this show. So first of all, when I think of recovery spaces, a lot of times they think about the body positivity movement. And I was just wondering if you could comment on... Your thoughts about the body positivity movement right now and how it's evolved, because I have a feeling many individuals listening do not see that.
2: Yeah, from an outside perspective, the body positivity movement seems like a really amazing thing. And in some ways, it is really encouraging people to talk about their bodies, to feel comfortable in their bodies. The origins, however, of the body positivity movement are in fat liberation, black fat liberation, black fat femme liberation. So the people who started the body positivity movement as it's now referred to were black fat women, were fat people who were trying to create a space that was safe for them to exist in their fat bodies, to also lobby and to create a safer world where they have access to everything from clothing and space and seats to equitable pay and salary and abilities to get diagnosed. And there's a lot of weight stigma in healthcare. So when we think about the body positivity movement now, as it is, the idea is everybody should or can feel positive in their body. But the problem with this is that it ignores the origins of the movement, which is to not necessarily make everybody feel positive in their bodies, but specifically help people who don't feel positive in their bodies or safe in their bodies because of systemic oppression, because of all the reasons that I just stated. And so I used to have an account called Intro to Body Posse because I was at this place too. And I was like, body positivity is amazing. I get to be like, I am happy in my body or I'm learning to be happy in my body. And there are so many nuances to body liberation, body neutrality, which I'm happy to talk about if we want to rejoin this conversation later. But the importance of recognizing that body positivity is kind of... A starting point. It's kind of like an entrance into this world. It is so wonderful that people are feeling good in their bodies. However, not everybody has the possibility of feeling good in their bodies just because of what they say or what they feel, because their bodies are being policed. Their bodies are being attacked daily, just flat out aggressions, like being yelled at across the street. I get comments constantly on social media on my public social media about like, why are you fat? Just lose weight, like constant negativity that I have to, as a fat person, decide how to move forward with. And I have a lot of privilege in this space because I've been taught to ignore those. And I am also in a smaller fat body. So that is to say, like. There's a lot of content out there that it looks really positive. Like I know one of your questions was about how thin white women who kind of scrunch over and show roles can be really toxic. And it's not because the way that their body looks. I mean, it's wonderful that we all get to find love and peace, hopefully at some point in our life with our bodies. But the privilege comes And I have to mention, you know, I learned this from a black fat woman, Ivy Felicia. She taught me this. The privilege really comes when I'm standing up straight. I have a fat body and I have roles and it is privilege to be able to only have roles when you bend over. And so to see that as a body positive moment is kind of strange because it's like people praise White, thin women for bending over and showing their roles and scrunching up. But then when fat people just exist with their roles on their body, they are attacked on social media and in person and told that they need to change themselves. And so just existing in this space of being able to be praised rather than punished, mm-hmm. essentially, for the same thing is really harmful. hmm
1: it's really an eye opener, you know, as a thin white woman in general, whenever I hear these conversations and just observe, I learn so much and I could totally see how as someone who is, you know, if I were to like bend over and show my roles, I'm almost faking an oppression I don't have. <laughs> and it's, um, it's complicated. And a lot of people don't see it that way. At the end of the day, I think anyone being brave enough to show their body and celebrating their body online can be really powerful but it's also interesting how it can be harmful without recognizing it.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I know that you have to skedaddle. You are just a busy lady. <laughs> so, thank you so much for being on the show. It was quite inspiring and informative and I love collaborating with you. I'm so excited for a collaboration in May with Project HEAL. And yeah, I just hope you have a beautiful day. Thank you so much, Meg.
2: You're very welcome. And for everyone listening, could you share where everyone can find you? Yeah. So my personal activism is at The Body Activists on Instagram and Facebook. And then if you want to check out Project HEAL, if you have any issues with eating disorders and want a free clinical assessment, that's at project heal on Instagram and I'd be happy to connect with you either place. I am leading both of those accounts. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Woo. All right. Well, you guys know where to find Serena.
0: So Serena take care and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the show. Before I let you go, I wanted to let you in on a little something exciting happening soon inside the Recovery Collective. This May, the Recovery Collective will be collaborating with Project Heal to celebrate their 14th birthday with a two week recovery extravaganza on social media called the 14 Days of Healing. The cool thing about Project Heal is that they are the only nonprofit working to provide equitable access to eating disorder treatment. Project HEAL also provides life-saving support through treatment placements, free insurance navigation help, and cash assistance grants. We are so proud to be working with them because it will not only be impactful, but it will be so fun and connecting to those in the eating disorder recovery spaces registration for the event starts on april 21st so please make sure you're following project heal and the recovery collective to sign up all right that's it for my big news thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the podcast and i look forward to seeing you all inside the 14 days of healing event with project heal we are so excited for it Have a beautiful day and I will catch you next time.